for all the negatives that surround the American church, and there are many, uh, and many of which are our fault, uh, for all the negatives that surround, because we just, we just keep messing with it, you know, um, for all the negatives that surround the American church, the church in general, I still think that, I still believe in the heart of my heart that there's something beneath the surface of all of that that's worth saving and that's worth um, reviving. There's something beautiful that lives beneath all of the static uh, that's created around uh, the church. And if you live, if you live, if you are awake, um, you recognize, and maybe some of you have come from church backgrounds that were difficult. Uh, I was telling this story, um, I go to a counselor, just as an admission uh, to you, but he and I were talking about church uh, this past week, and I told him, I said, I'm 48, and been doing ministry since I graduated college, 1995, Um, and same hairdo, by the way, but uh, only if the church would allow it. That's why I became a senior pastor, so I could do whatever I wanted with my hair. Um, But I was telling him that um, it was new for me to hear stories about people who grew up in church environments that were uh, harmful uh, and negative, uh, because I was just lucky enough to grow up in a youth group where there was a lot of grace, there was a lot of margin, there was a lot of of us in that place. and so I just didn't have that experience uh, that some of you have had. And, and it was really through this church that I started to hear stories uh, from some of you even in this room of the churches that you grew up in and how difficult those were and how honestly in many ways uh, sitting in this room can sometimes be difficult for you or hard uh, to hear certain things. And maybe, maybe when I read certain passages, you just twitch, you know, because those were used uh, in your in your in your history in your story, as passages of harm or shame or whatever, all of that is just the static that exists around the church. And I again, I truly believe that something beneath all of that or behind all that is worth saving. And that's what I want to talk about uh, today. I know when Lindsay read the text from the Book of Acts, um, you thought, "Oh, this is a giving sermon because they sold land and they brought the money so we could have the kitchen." Um, <laughs> But that's not what this is. I mean, that, is, that text is really just an example of like when the church is functioning at her best, what it looks like. Uh, so you can all relax. Um, it's not, we'll talk about giving another day, but not, not today. And so uh, what I want to do is use a passage of Scripture uh, from John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then verse 14. Uh, this is from the prologue to John's gospel, the, the preface to the story of Jesus that He's going to tell, and this is a very, very important text uh, because it really sets the tone, not just for the the story that he's going to tell about Jesus and what that means, but for what it means for us uh, too. And so he says, uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then I'll read verse 14. In the beginning, I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, that should clue you in as to what John is doing. In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning through Him, or with God. All things came into being through Him, and with Him not one thing came into being. 
Um, let me just start over because I've missed some words here. <laughs> Still shaking off that Counting Crows show. Uh, let's start over. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then in verse 14, this is the, this is the thing here. And the word became flesh. Say that. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. So this is the prologue to the story of Jesus, but it acts as a runway into what God wants from his people as well. And I want to talk about that just for a moment. But to get there, what John is doing is quite extraordinary uh, in this little section at the beginning of his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word that John chose to use for the word word was the Greek word logos. Now that word, logos, meaning word, has a very layered history and, uh, and several different meanings depending on who's listening or reading John's gospel in those days. It's a very brilliant move on his part. Now the logos for the Greek-minded, Greek-speaking, Hellenistic culture in which John lived, the Logos was the thing, the unseen thing, and that's key, the unseen thing that held all the universe together. How is it that the stars do not fall from the sky? The ancients would ask, and they would be answered with the, with the response, it, it is the Logos. Well, what is that? Well, we don't really know. But something is keeping all of this together. The sustainer of life and of the universe, the Logos. And so, in part, there are people hearing this, and John is referencing the source and the sustainer of life. For the Jew, for the Hebrew-minded person in that day, the Word represents the very words of God, that God speaks. This happens all throughout the Scriptures, that God speaks things into existence. Remember how John began the gospel in the beginning? There's a little bit of a callback here to that very first story that we have in our Bibles of God speaking things into existence. You know how it goes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, yada, 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 yada. And then every single day of creation in that story, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. So for the Jewish-minded, Hebrew-minded listener, the Word of God, the Logos, the very breath behind the things that God speaks, creates new worlds. So you have in both audiences people listening to John saying, there's a thing out there that is creating and holding all of this together. And what John does here is he says, um, whatever you think is the source of all of this, Whatever you think is the thing that's holding all of this together, well, it came here as a person, is what John is saying. It showed up in the person, in the flesh of Jesus. 
So John says, basically, from now on, all questions about existence, about sustainability, about life, all are referred to the person of Jesus. And that's why he says the word became flesh and lived among us, he writes. This layer of God in person is so important to the story of God in the flesh. It's the reality or the thinking behind the doctrine called the incarnation. Very famous uh, theological term, but the incarnation is just this, that's the doctrine behind that God became a person that he put skin on and moved in to the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson uh, put it. And so John is saying the thing that was unseen was now seen. Does that make sense? What does that have to do with the church? Well, let me tell you this story to get there. When societies in the ancient world built temples, and they all pretty much did, they built temples to their gods, we know a lot about this through history. Uh, And when ancient societies built their temples uh, for the worship of their gods, there were these ceremonial liturgies of dedicating the temple. And they're almost always the same. And most temples uh, retell the story of creation from a society's point of view and from their history. If you go inside the Jerusalem temple, it's essentially the story, uh, it's pictured the story of creation, of God's world, of God's residence. And, um, And so we know this. And we also know that the very last thing that people would put in the temple to dedicate the temple was a statue of the God for whom that temple is built, or several, depending on your flavor of religion. And so what is the statue? Well, the statue is the image of the God that you can't see. It is a physical sort of substitute, stand-in reminder of the presence of the God, of the deity, that you can't see. And when we go back to the creation story in Genesis, we see this very thing take place. Uh, The writer tells us about how God um, was building his temple, the world in which he would live, and how he would create this place where he would dwell. And on the final day of that story, day six, he inserts into his creation an image of himself, which turns out to be you and me. You know the text. Genesis 1.26, let us make humankind in our what? Image. Now, I grew up thinking, that means that I am like God. That's not what it means at all, because <laughs> I'm nothing like God. But it, what it means is that I am functioning on this earth as a stand-in for the thing that people can't see. To be made in the image of God is to carry with you and, and I carry with me this call on our life to, to act, to live, to function as a stand-in for the thing that people can't see but want so badly to see, which is God. The understanding was the invisible God was made visible through the lives of his people, through you and me. Incarnation, God becoming flesh, has been the thing from the very, very beginning that humanity is the result of God wanting to show himself to the world. We are stand-ins for the thing that people can't see. The other day, the staff and I were 
in a car going somewhere. Um, I don't remember. Probably to eat. Because um, at some point every day, the three of us go, what do you, you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? What sounds good to you? You have this conversation with your, your friends, right? I don't know. Well, you want to go there? No, nah, I went there last time. Whatever the case was, we were in the car together. And um, I love, I love stand-up comics. Um, I have a list of my top favorites and um, have been known to call the staff in my office and say, hey, watch this clip on YouTube. And they roll their eyes, but they watch it because I'm the boss. And, um, <laughs> which, which always turns into a YouTube party, you know? It's like, how are we now watching stuff from Blade Runner? Um, <laughs> but, um, which I don't think we've ever done, but maybe we'll do that this week and update you. Um, but we were in the car and I was, uh, we were talking about something and I said these words. I said, I don't think, because you know, Norm MacDonald passed away a couple weeks ago, uh, one of the greats. And I said, I don't think there's ever been anyone to nail uh, the impression of Burt Reynolds like Norm MacDonald <laughs> nailed the impression of Burt Reynolds. Do we have a photo of this? Yeah. Amazing. I don't know if you guys watched Celebrity Jeopardy on SNL, um, but it's on rotation, you know, on my YouTube account. But, uh, and he was so amazing. The voice, the look, I mean, he just looks like him. Um, it's uncanny. And so we were talking about that, just, just how wonderful it was to like, and great impressionists do that, don't they? Like they start talking or doing something and you're like, it really feels like I'm listening to or looking at this person that they're imitating. A great impressionist has the ability to suspend your reality for a moment. And you're like, it really felt like that person. And it looked like that person. An impressionist can do that. And an impressionist is really just, again, it's just a stand-in for the person that is not there. You know where I'm going with this, right? Or do you? <laughs> the call on the church is to act out the ways of Jesus in the worlds that each of us inhabit. To act out his ways in our relationships, in the ways that we engage with our faith, and most importantly, the ways that we engage with those who have needs. That's the call upon the church to be this earthly expression of God's ways of grace and mercy in the world. Here's the thing about the church. The church is actually not an idea. I think sometimes we lose our way because we think of the church as this idea. It's an idea. It's a, it's a thing to think about. But it isn't an idea at all. It's an incarnational living expression of Jesus. That's what it's supposed to be. It's, um, it has skin and bones and people and things that it does. It's a living expression of a person. It's not an idea. It's nothing to ascend to. It's nothing to descend into. It's actually not even a thing to be a part of because it just is what it is. It is a living expression of Jesus in the world. That's the call on the church.
Sometimes she does a good job at that. Sometimes she doesn't. I mean, just look at the number of different denominations and iterations of those denominations that exist all over the world. Uh, a study several years ago uh, said that, and this includes all the different iterations, there's some 40,000 denominations that exist in the world. I know you were just thinking Catholic, Baptist, what else is there? Oh, Orthodox. I don't know if you're familiar with Orthodox. Um, you never have to worry if your friend is Orthodox because they will tell you. They're like, they're like vegans. So. That was for you, Lindsay. So. But there's so many expressions of what the church is. And some of those are good. Some of those are negative. Some of those are terrible. But I think what happens to all of us in churches is that we lose, we lose the understanding that, oh, this is at the end of the day a body of people who live as a, as a we do impressions of Jesus. That's what we do. That's what we do. And to be a part of a church, to say something like, I go to church or this is my church, is to participate in that incarnational life, this in-person reality of the thing that people can't see, but they really want to see. You do know that, right? Like the only Jesus people will see is you and me, those who claim to follow him. I have never in my 25 years of doing this or whatever the number is at this point, been able to convince anybody of anything at an, at an intellectual level. Never. Uh, maybe I'm just not good at that. But it always is like a story of an experience with the church that draws people into the story of Jesus himself. It's not the other way around. I've never been able to do it. In fact, I've stopped doing that. Because again, I might not be good at it. Maybe you're great at it. And God bless you, keep doing it. But what I have found is that people tend to have this experience with the church that ignites in them this passion to learn more about the thing behind the church, not the other way around. And throughout history, the church, again, has lost her way. She has become things that she had never meant to become, like places of affinity around politics, around race, around status, even doctrine. But these things are all less than what Christ wanted for the church. But when she is at her best, the church is very, very much like Jesus. A sixth century mystic, Spanish mystic, Teresa of Avila writes these words, Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion is to look out to the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. And yours are the hands with which God is to bless people now. At the very end of John's gospel, after his resurrection, um, he is with his disciples in the upper room. And he says these words, Peace be with you. 
which is what you say to a group of people who thought you were dead, and you're there. Everyone calm down. Peace be with you. And then he said, as the Father had sent me, I am now what? Sending you. That's the, that's the church. As the Father sent me, why did the Father send me? Why did the Father send Jesus? John just lays this out all the way through. Jesus is the in-person expression of God with skin and bones and things to say and things to do. If you want to know who God is, John says, he's right there. Only for a moment in time, but there he is. There he was, there he goes. And then Jesus says to his disciples, I'm out, you're in. That's the plan. I will say, it's a bad plan. because it's in our hands. It's not a great plan. But that's why we need each other. That's why being the church together is so important, because we can't do this on our own. You can't. I can't. If you can, again, great. But I doubt it. It takes all of us circling up regularly, worshiping together regularly, in conversation with each other regularly about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world, to be his expression in the world. The church is a sent community and one who wears the clothing of Jesus. We are all impressionists of the divine, of the image of God in the world, and we are carriers of God's grace and mercy and justice to all of those around us. And anything less than that is just a distracting injury into the healing that God wants to bring into the world. Everything else is just a distracting injury. So remember that today. It's probably the only thing you'll remember. <laughs> but remember that today as you leave this place, that you are part of a body of people here in Home Park on State Street like churches all over the city and all over the world, you are part of this one whose passion is to grow in the ways of Jesus that the world might know who he is, not through so much what we say, but how we live our lives. Sure.